Um, Nutter Butters and Fruit Loops. How many times do I need to request <laughs> this? Here in the lab, we're published too. Old Boys Club, we're coming for you. In the field, in the lab next door. Yeah, the plots you've been waiting for. Hello, Professor. Here's the rub. It's misbehavior. General Club. Hello, world. I'm your knockout girl. It's misbehavior. General Club. When I was in a meeting earlier this week, that little recording in progress was tipped on, and I almost said, thank you, lady, <laughs> out loud, and I'm really glad I didn't, because nobody would have known who I was referring to. I was so glad that I controlled myself. <laughs> That's really fucking funny. Welcome, listeners, to the Misbehavior Journal Club. I'm Amiel Moreno, PhD, here with Leah Kravitz, Banff. And we are two scientifically trained and certifiably funny females bringing you the behind-the-scenes look at the latest neuroscience research with humor, vinegar, and humanity. Uh, I just had a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, and uh, it was because of you. It was all because of you. <laughs> you are hundreds of miles away. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I had that kind of power over people. You're a witch. <laughs> when? Okay. Readers, li God fucking damn it. Listeners, Listeners. <laughs> ear readers, what's happening is I am sitting in a room filled with the fumes of apple cider vinegar, and I hate how much I don't hate it. Oh, it's lovely. It's so functional. Okay, um, lots of information on female health right now. You can take a good quart of that and put it in a bathtub if you're having, like, yeasty problems with your lady parts. Huh. So is your sister making the apple cider vinegar? Uh, no, she's brining something. Ah, is it a brisket? It's pickles. I fucking oh. wish it was. Uh, would you want to brine a brisket with apple cider vinegar? These That's are... sometimes an ingredient in uh, slow cooking a brisket. Oh, okay, but not like you're, entirely. You're a Jewish family, I figured. <laughs> you never know, yeah. Maybe. But... No, the okay, I listeners, for whatever reason, I've never been in a room with a bunch of apple cider vinegar just out. And so she's also prepping laundry. So my and she also does a lot of work outside. So like there might be pile ups of outside work, intense laundry. So I was emotionally prepared to be like, Oh, wow, smelly clothes in aggregate. But I really couldn't place the smell as apple cider vinegar, because it does smell like one of the half dozen occasions I can think of, of an extremely sweaty workday, a really long outside doing a lot of crazy shit, and you get in, mm. and you rip off your clothes, and you smell them, because of course you do, and apple cider vinegar, Amiel. I didn't know some component of that occupies the same olfactory receptors as horrifying laundry but god help me it does and i hate that i don't hate it that's the thing that's tr it's just reminding me of what like a filthy pile of cells and disgusting preferences i am vinegar is an acid when your body is sweating profusely and you haven't ingested very many carbohydrates 
it will produce more of a vinegary smell. But like other vinegars, not an issue. All right, so you you put this stuff in your mouth and swallow? Yeah, it's really good for your digestive health. And uh, it can also solve the problem of, I want a snack just because I want to eat, not because I'm actually hungry. Mm. You just have a little bit of that. Just take and... a sip and you don't want a snack. You don't even want a mouth anymore. <laughs> so you're hanging out at your sister's house. What else is new, Leah? Allosteric modification. So I was putting up some wire mesh with a staple gun, and there was a little post that got in the way of the staple gun. Uh huh. It wasn't a problem with the staple gun, and it wasn't a problem with the mesh, so it wasn't a problem at the active site, but the positioning of the post <laughs> meant that I couldn't fit the staple gun in the way that it needed to go. And so I, uh, yeah. The enzyme didn't have easy access to the action site. Yeah. Okay. Just a good reminder that there are a lot of ways to fuck up an interaction. And speaking mm -hmm. of interactions, I was putting up that mesh to keep some birds out of some place that birds have no business being. And <laughs> birds should know their business. <laughs> okay. A lot of the territoriality research that I've interacted with over the course of my life is like, Two individuals duking it out, usually of the same species, um, mm, mm -hmm. and that's or warfare in some way. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm not saying this is because the literature is lopsided and it's bullshit. I'm just saying this is what I've seen mostly from my corner of it. Mm -hmm. But so much of territoriality is interspecies, right? Just the fundamental. You can't live here. I live here. Yeah, very much so. Well, it gets to like predator and prey, but more than that, resources, you know, have to be competitive for <laughs> cut, yeah, cutting yeah. all that. No, <laughs> I love competitive. We, they have to be competitive for. Competitive for so many resources. Yeah. And there are so many different ways to compete for resources. Like, you know, another individual can eat my food or it can just live in my food and make it gross or lay its eggs in my food or die in my food. Or you can spend a lot of time making the perfect cave and then a bear moves in and you don't have that cave anymore. <laughs> yeah, how do you evict a bear? <laughs> yeah, you don't. do not. No. And it also is making me think of the different ways that territoriality is expressed and enacted like imagine that i'm in my apartment and i have people over mm -hmm. and i'm in the bathroom using it if another human person i think that perfectly timed with the toilet flush <laughs> so, uh, wow if i'm in my bathroom and another human shows up in there what i do is say yes someone's in here oh you know mulaney like um <laughs> If a moth shows up in my bathroom, I would end its life. Those are two very different responses, but they come from the same place of, you can't be here, I'm busy being here. Very much so. I guess that's all I had to say about territoriality. That's not true, but we have a lot to get to. So that's all I have to say today about that particular expression of territory, of, of competing for resources and being territorial. My solution is just to piss on everything. That <laughs> usually helps keep things away. Including yourself, because if so, that's going to tie into one of the assays that we're talking about later. Warm for a second, cold for the rest of the day. All right, so shared announcement time. Uh, 
Happy 50th episode, Leah. Yay! Yay! We did it! We did a thing. This is a number that people think is important based on the... On the DECA system of everything's measured in tens and hundreds. Yeah, if we had three fingers each, we would be celebrating at very different episodes. But everything else about our life would be the same. (laughs) No other changes. We fucking did 50 of these things. And you can listen to the last and most recent 20 of them for free. Just, Just get them. Get all of them. Listen to them. Thank you very much for downloading Downloads are appreciated. If you want to check out the earlier 30 episodes, go on a downloading spree on our Patreon. You can find a link to that in the show notes. You surely can. And now it's time for our feature journal article. And for our 50th episode, Leah and I will be presenting the same article together. I found this one and I just knew she was going to love it. This episode, Leah and I will be presenting an article published in Nature Neuroscience titled Experimenters Sex Modulates Mouse Behaviors and Neural Responses to Ketamine via Corticotropin Releasing Factor. It's out of University of Maryland. And there's an author from the University of Cyprus in there, too. So first author, Georgiou, and that is spelled G-E-O-R-G-I-O-U. Sorry for the mispronunciation. And the last author is Gould. Not that Gould. Not that one. There's only, like, one famous Gould, but whenever there's a Gould, I think of the Gould. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about that when the queen died, how, like, when people say the Elizabethan era, they will never be talking about hers. And she's known that her whole life. I mean, it's fine. She's She was still queen. It's still fine. But oof. I won $100 because she died. I bet somebody $100 that she didn't have very much longer. And we set a time for Who us. Who took which... that bet? Yeah, maybe it was, uh, maybe I shouldn't take advantage of this old woman that I had the bet with. But uh Yeah. Yeah, I told her that I would take the money in the form of champagne and oysters. So looking forward to that. (laughs) Did she have a a later date? Is it like a pick a date betting pool or? I don't know how I talked her into this. Maybe it's a sign of dementia, but she said that the queen would not die before March 2023. I was like, oh, come on. She's not going to make it to March. So I, I definitely took that bet for $100, made sure I had a witness. I'm good. <laughs> All right. Get get those oysters. So ketamine. Ketamine is a rapid-acting antidepressant. That is in its sub-anesthetic doses. It is an anesthesia if you have it in higher doses and is known as a horse tranquilizer originally. It's thought to act through the N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor. An NMDAR antagonist. It also has some relation to AMPA receptors and their activity, and those are required for ketamine's antidepressant relevant behavior effects. AMPA receptors, NMDAR receptors, pin numbers, and ATM machines, and LED lights. AMPA receptors and NMDARs, they are glutamate receptors. Mm-hmm. When you think of the brain, 
we talk about serotonin, we talk about dopamine, we talk about oxytocin. But like when you watch a documentary and you see a bunch of brain cells lighting up, Mm -hmm. which is like one of my least favorite visual representations, that kind of fast like, hey, contract a muscle, don't contract a muscle. Ah." Um, glutamate, GABA. In the last episode, we talked about glutamate being uh, neurotoxic. It's everywhere in your brain, uh, but if it hangs out too long, it's like a kid who keeps on ringing the doorbell. You want to get it Mm. out of that space immediately. (laughs) That's a great analogy for that. Yeah, I had had another one um, that was uh, involved a moil, and uh, you should go back and listen to the last episode for that. So we've known for a while that there's something about the males who perform experiments, so experimenters. Male experimenters' scent increases the HPA axis activity of laboratory animals. And what scientists decided to do in response to this is to ignore it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that hits deep in my soul. Deep in my soul. There's a specific protocol in which fingers are inserted into uh, ear canals and the subject (laughs) produces a la, 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 la sound from their mouth whenever this is brought up. Okay, I've seen other protocols where what they say is ba, 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 ba. Is that, does that, are those interchangeable? Either one, watermelon, watermelon, anything. (laughs) Rhubarb. Okay. Uh, hey, Amiel, what the hell is the HPA axis? Okay, that is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And yeah, it deserves a little bit of an explanation because we're going to be talking about it a bit. That is what uh, is um, triggered when you experience an event that you find stressful. So we remember a hypothalamus, hormone central. I mean, the whole brain and body is hormone central, but pituitary, the balls of the brain, Dumping out stuff into the bloodstream. Uh, adrenal glands, again, add renal on top of your renals, your kidneys, and awesome. releasing adrenaline, which you might colloquially associate with stress response. I was surprised at how horrible all of the diagrams I found online of this were. Some of them just didn't include what was produced by these different areas and just had an arrow to the next mm. area. I could barely find any of them that included the enzymes responsible for the, the different productions. Or then when you did find that, it wasn't next to where that occurred in the body. It was very frustrating. And it made me like, I could... I could draw a perfect one. I could draw like the perfect one and then everyone would use it. (laughs) And I would have the preliminary, most amazing HPA access drawing available online. Actually, yeah. No, you're 100% right. And Uh that's some real low ass hanging fruit. Good, intuitive, comprehensive figures are so much harder to generate than one might think. And you don't have time to do that when you're having to give a presentation that has to do with like one little step in that whole big long axis. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you're out there reading a diagram and being like, I cannot make literal heads or tails of this, hit that Google image search, enter your keywords, don't stop scrolling until you see something that fits in your eyeballs. There's a lot of stuff that's on my mind because I'm 
working with high school students and they're like, this is really complicated. It's like, it is, but also keep scrolling. There's someone out there who's made it simpler. There are multiple pages of Google. I thought there was just that first one. (laughs) So now we come to a new segment called Leah's a fucking science hipster. Um, (laughs) So if this work just on its face sounds a little familiar, you you might remember a paper from 2013 or 2014 in nature neuroscience or methods or nature a hipster would be way more confident even if incorrect at this point (laughs) it hurts (laughs) but it's a hipster scientist so okay true all right yeah this study uh builds on and makes reference to another one out of the mogul lab in mcgill and they're studying pain noticed some issues with this um not only the new method that they were trying but like the baseline bread and butter this assay should definitely work so we'll compare its results to our fancy new experimental method that shit was failing and they were like why why are these mice acting weird when they broke down the data by experimenter sex that's when they found interesting stuff was that the sorg study s-o-r-g-e yeah yeah 2014 woo all right And I was talking about that on Twitter, because it's not a waste of time. And Dr. Voikar said the four best words in all of science, which are, nice study, any replications, and I went hunting. This was in June of 2021. And the only relevant replication-y type experimental data I could find was just a poster abstract from 2018. Oh my god. And it was from this lab, and it's like, shame on me. I thought that meant this must have petered out, this must not have gone anywhere, or there would be a paper about it. Mm -hmm. No, this shit takes a long-ass time. I gotta be more fucking patient, because, wow. Yeah, so this is exactly the replication I was looking for, and, uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, imagine hearing... Okay, imagine if the authors are listening to this right now and they heard somebody <laughs> say, this is the exact replication I've been looking for in regards to their paper. I hope their hearts feel a little bit warmer. I I hope they hold on to that feeling and remember it well, because I fucking hate the forced swim test and the sucrose preference test and a lot of tests they use. But good paper. Yay. Yeah, but if it was up to you, you wouldn't be testing any animals. You'd just be asking them to fill out improperly worded surveys. I would be setting camera traps and doing all manner of weird stuff. Feels good to be known. (laughs) So uh, what they were looking at in this study was how does the experimenter's sex, male or female, affect stress-induced behaviors in mice? And also, by what mechanism does the male versus female scent affect the responses to ketamine in mice? This study had a bunch of different methods, so many behavior studies, so many male and female experimenters. But the most interesting method, I think, was how they went about collecting scent. Yeah, hit me. How'd they do it? So now it's time for a segment called Here's How That Went Down, where we bridge the gap between how methods are written versus what happened in the lab. In this case, they actually wrote the methods pretty clearly on how do you get that good, good male scent? You ask the experimenters not to shower on the morning of the experiment. They aren't wearing any perfumed 
deodorants body yeah body stuff they're not wearing any scented body adornment wait that's not the right (laughs) word no anointments no adornments no anointments no smelly anything and then when you wanted to have a shirt you had them wear that shirt for 24 hours before it was quickly stuffed in an airtight bag for that day's experiment you you gotta stuff it that I, be- I don't. That's what you always say. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was a fascinating thing to have come out of my mouth just now. Yep, running on weird autopilot. Um, I love the human scent collection genre. Uh, there was another study that I found where they were looking at um, cows, uh, cows' responses to sweaty shirts of various natures, <laughs> and. <laughs> I think in that they were collecting data from students who were stressed out by just having taken a test. And so they'd ask them, like, how, how stressful was that experience you just had? Yeah. Because remember in uh, one of the earlier episodes, we were talking about the Trier Social Stress Test. Yeah. And you were talking about, like, stress sweat and how it, it hits different. It seems like it does. I, I think it does as well. I'm... I'm on board. It's decided. (laughs) Highly scientific. Yeah. I think it matters to the cows. Stamp approval. Would you like to enter a new segment? Yeah. This segment is called Welcome to My World of Nightmares. So. (laughs) Yes, thank you. That is that is the vibe. Uh, when you think about all the factors that can affect the way a person smells, the one that sticks out to me the most is the one that's relevant to my experience as a pedestrian who mm. used to do research in Georgia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, a day when you take the bus in is very different from a day when you walk in. Yeah. When you shower that morning is very different. Uh, when you have a friend over who smokes. How's the weather? Is it cool that morning? Is it muggy? I had an organic chemistry professor in undergrad who was talking about this very this experiment that's very sensitive to humidity in Chicago because he's a good professor and because it's Chicago, his students always get really good yields and they don't get fucked up by like water contamination. Okay. But his contact at Tulane in Louisiana was saying, I can never get decent yields. It's Aww. awful. Am I just fucking it up? Well, no, you're fucking it up by being in Louisiana, yeah. where the air is water. Um, <laughs> all of these things make a difference. We can't uh, even bear things in the ground. They just found this way back up above the water line. Yeah. Uh, what a city. And and once you start thinking about these variables, okay, if all of these things are hitting your ears and making you go, so many variables. Welcome to my world of nightmares. I burn it alive. I burn from the inside out. How is this happening? How are you able to talk while burning alive from the inside out? That's I don't know the- how this works. How is it still happening? Oh, right. Hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So what did they find? A lot. So much. 
we're not going to do this paper justice. So just sit back and enjoy. Yeah, authors, we- stop listening now. We're not going <laughs> to No, we're going to try our best to do you justice. But we are not going to cover every single one of the numerous behavior assays that you used in order to bolster your findings. This is like a best of album, except instead of best of, it's ones where we had the most stuff to talk about and could fit it into the segment. I don't know why I'm so confident that they're going to listen to this one over any of the, I'm like, oh, but it's the 50th episode. They must. No, that's not how it works. Anyways, findings. So the first set of findings that they did were uh, looking at humans and their scent based on if they're male or female experimenters and how it's modulating the behavior of the mice. So overall, the male scent is aversive compared to the female scent, uh, which isn't necessarily rewarding, but does evoke investigation by these little mice. They had something called a sniff test in which cotton swabs were rubbed along the inner part of your elbow and up to the wrist of the experimenters and then placed in an enclosure where the mouse was able to approach both and they measured simply the amount of time that the mice spent smelling these different cotton balls. And they found that there was actually a preference. They sniffed more the female scent and avoided the male scented cotton ball. And while we're talking about things being rewarding versus aversive, I just want to remind everyone I am sitting in a room of apple cider vinegar. <laughs> and I, I hate it, but I just want to keep breathing it in. So um, all of these experiences are very complicated. <laughs> when you're testing olfactory preference, one of the most important questions you have to ask is, do they actually have olfactory capability? Yeah. Um, there are other experiments. That's helpful. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, any sort of preference test. I know this has happened where somebody has been presenting their findings in front of a large auditorium. And the first question they get is, did you do a test to see if they could fill in the blank? hear, smell, sense in any way, and the person didn't have that data? Can you imagine? That's like showing up on stage naked. I just would be so terrified. That's a very common nightmare of mine, actually, is showing up somewhere naked. But the problem isn't that I'm naked. That's not an issue. The problem is that I got naked to make some statement. (laughs) And by the time... By the time the dream starts, I don't remember what that was, so I can't defend it or change course. I'm just out there executing. My naked dreams are totally different. I'm naked for some reason in the dream trying to accomplish another goal and, like, (laughs) covering myself. And oddly, the people in my dream never care that I'm naked. It's never brought. It's just I'm uncomfortable with myself. Oof. Oh my god. Oh my god, I think I learned something about myself. Yes. I'm I'm uncomfortable with myself about things that nobody else cares about. Wow, you're the first person who that's ever (laughs) happened to. There's a case study that's going to be planned all about this. (laughs) They're going to be like, extra, extra, read all about it. Woman uncomfortable with herself. That's excellent. You both spotted off of the coast of California. <laughs> that would be news. <laughs> yeah. 
in any sort of olfactory preference test, you will need to make sure that the individuals can actually smell, especially because with housing, if mm-hmm. you have inadequate cage ventilation, the buildup of ammonia can damage the mouse's nasal situation. Oh my god. It's a really big fucking problem. Oof. Life is a nightmare. Welcome to my world of nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in this case, they could smell fine unless they were made anosmic, in which case they couldn't. So good for them. And one of the ways to test uh, olfactory capabilities is uh, just by seeing if they can find a buried tasty thing. Different papers use a lot of different tasty, smelly treats. Mm-hmm. Uh my favorites are Nutter Butters, and uh, I think I've seen Fruit Loops used either for olfactory ability testing or just they needed something to make the mouse want to go be where the Fruit Loops are. All right, so what did what did they find? <laughs> okay, so uh, moving on to their response to actual like stressful situations and how the male scent could influence this. Um, they found that there was a greater stress response from males and it affected anxiety, the response to pain, and depression-relevant behaviors in mice. One of the many tests that they performed was the forced swim test, which is one in which an animal is put in water, in this case a mouse, and you measure how, I'm sure there's a latency to them becoming immobile or Mm -hmm. what is interpreted as giving up and also the amount of time that they spend immobile because there can be moments where they stop swimming and then start back up again. Mm -hmm. So when a man is handling the mice and performing this test, the amount of time that the mice are immobile is higher than when the same test is run by a female experimenter. I've got a, got a little bit to say about the forced swim test. Okay, I've got a lot to say about the forced swim test, but this podcast is not 22 hours long, so I've got a little bit to say now about the forced swim test. It has long stuck out to me, and anyone, intuitively, as a very narrow sliver of what one might find in a depression-related experience. Um, And in particular... uh, I shouldn't have said anything. You would think with how often you like to talk about this, you'd be better at it. (laughs) (laughs) You would, would you think that, though? You can do stuff a lot and be bad at it. You know what? I'm giving up. I'm not going to swim anymore. Hey. You just keep on going. Keep on Who needs to edit this later? Not me. I'm not spending (laughs) hours audio editing anything anymore. So is Modest Mouse's song, Well, I'll Float On All Right, is that an ode to depression? An anthem of, of giving up in the forced swim test? That's just a question for you for later. Um, okay, I'll say one thing about the forced swim test. Freezing behavior, immobility, not moving, encompasses a lot of different experiences. I've been thinking about this with silence in education, you know, how you have to, like, give kids fucking window to think before you ask them to to speak to you. The idea that someone can be just sitting there not emitting any observable activity 
and yet have a world of stuff going on inside their head? That's not a new thing for me to say, that's just all of life, and we need to be thinking about that when we think about immobile mice in the forced swim test. Yeah, no uh, one's saying they're not thinking while they're immobile. Okay, right, but the idea that there can be a wide variety of things going on under the hood when someone is not moving. Uh, so none of this is a new thing for me to say. There are papers coming out all the time talking about what it means to observe a freezing animal and, and how we should look into the neural, neural correlates of that freezing experience. Uh, if what I'm saying resonates with you, you should go and read that shit. Because an immobile mouse, like Chloe from Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23 beautifully said, is like a river in winter. Frozen on the top, flowy on the bottom. I loved that show. I don't care what men think of that show. I loved that show. It was so fucking good. She, she was, was like, like a role model. Yes, that's exactly what. Yep. And the, yep, and the yep, main yep. character like woman was way too pretty for the number of problems that she had. <laughs> absolutely gorgeous and hilarious. I saw her again in Brockmire and was just so happy. She's getting a bunch of work. Oh, I love Brockmire too. Oh, so good. The most entertaining alcoholism could ever be. Yeah, that's a show. All right. So in regards to the forced swim test, you know, given your feelings on it, why do you think that if there are things going on under the surface of the frozen mice uh, that are affecting how much or how little they freeze, why do you think that ones handled by males are freezing for more amount of the time than the ones handled by females? Or when the forced swim test is used on any other, uh, you know, like a, a drug study where they find a drug has an effect on uh, the amount of time spent immobile. Yeah, sure. Because something interesting is going on. For sure. I'm, I'm just saying, if you feel like you're expected to draw too straight and short a line mm. between not swimming when there's nowhere to fucking swim to mm -hmm. and being depressed... Don't feel that pressure. Mm -hmm. Nobody else does. There's plenty of very good writing about why not to. Yeah, there's like hundreds and hundreds of studies that have seen that like applying some sort of stressful event or a drug affects the amount of time spent immobile. And there's variation in the animals in their display of this behavior. It's just evident that as scientists, we're just prisoners of averages <laughs> we're just hoping that all of the animals will experience this yet there is behavior that might be in there but isn't displayed by enough animals to change the results overall change that average for every bar graph you see you need to imagine two hands grasped around it <laughs> banging on them going let me out <laughs> Okay, this next study is pretty fun. It's called the sucrose splash test. I had never heard of this one before. Yeah. Let's say you're volunteering for a study. While you're volunteering for this study, you're suddenly covered in a delicious sauce. Just like it falls down out of the... Is that what those safety showers have in them? It's, a, it's the safety showers. It's like Nickelodeon Double Dare. All of a sudden, you're covered in a delicious sauce. And the experimenters are curious... How long before you start licking the sauce off of you? Yeah. And also, like, do you do that because it's tasty or do you do that because you are sticky? 
I would say the the latter. And I would also say that none of that needed to be said. So that's what they're doing with these mice. They are splashing them with a sucrose solution and waiting for the time in which they start to groom themselves. Apparently, when handled by males and splashed by males, I'm not going to continue thinking about that. It made the mice take longer before they started grooming. Or this is a sign of decreased self-care. If anyone who wrote this study or is at all, um, how about every, can everyone, can every single person listening to this just turn the volume down for the next 15 seconds while I say what I'm about to say? Sukaki. Sukraki. Is that what it's called? <laughs> just, just a head shake. I wish it tasted like sucrose. Oh. And we're back. <laughs> oh my god. Anyways, okay, don't think about this either. Uh that this is a sign of decreased self-care. If you're not grooming yourself immediately after being splashed with something that you should be enjoying licking off of yourself. Oh my god. I'm so- I there's no food I would enjoy licking off of myself or anyone else. Bodies are not you're, food. You're wrong. You're just so wrong. The amount of times I about I, my own preferences? Yeah, you're wrong because those are Oh, f- bodies are literally food. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I'm a finger licker. After I eat something, I lick those flavor molecules off of my fingers. This whole thing reminds me of this one time that I um, was in my kitchen and I was making chicken stock and I accidentally spilled like a good quart of it on myself and the floor. And <laughs> I've never had such a wonderful smelling mistake in my life. <laughs> but I similarly, yeah, I dropped a bottle of uh, hazelnut syrup on the floor one time. Hazelnut syrup. <gasps> Delicious mistakes. Good smell. Um, and speaking of mistakes, I think this test isn't one, which is rare for me. I really love this test because, uh, first of all, I haven't seen it before, which, I mean, fair. I don't spend a lot of time in this literature space anymore. But every time I see something like the forced swim test or the tail suspension test, I'm like, all right, someone is applying an external stressor. Someone is ramping up your stress response, like right the fuck now uh-huh. going, here's a situation. It's bad. It's imminent. You have to escape it. And maybe you can't, mm-hmm. but a lot of depression related behaviors involve deliberately not putting yourself in situations where you have to rise to the challenge. Like how do you, te- what's the, mouse model for not getting out of bed Mm. and one of them is just letting things be shitty and saying fuck it (laughs) Uh, and so i would always think of it in terms of like you know if you have two areas and one of them is shittier but you're already in it and you can go be somewhere better but that would require effort nah is that that's the kind of thing that always seemed a little more fitting to me, and this is absolutely in that direction. So I'm a fan. Awesome. The next set of experiments they performed were looking at the experimenters' sex effects on pharmacological treatment, specifically ketamine. Uh, they found that it interacted with the male experimenter being the one handling the mice, and uh, when you have a male experimenter plus ketamine there were different antidepressant-like behaviors that the mice ended up displaying. 
sticking with the force swim test so that we don't have to explain all of these other tests that they did. <laughs> when you use ketamine or its metabolite, it does not affect the immobility time when it's a female handling the animal. But there was decreased immobility when a male handled the animal and they had this ketamine on board. Yeah, that's cool. In a weird aside that I don't usually see in studies, I think I really like it. They also repeated these experiments in a different lab in Yale. But yes, multi-site shit. Oh, for the win. It seemed like it was only this test. And I, I'm not sure why, but yes, please, more of that. And thank you. Maybe there was like someone who used to be in their lab, and this is just guessing. Maybe there's someone who like no, that yeah, that sounds used to be in their like. lab, and they're like, "Well, you did so much to help. We want you to be an author. Can you do these experiments where you are now?" But I don't know. I could see that. But this was interesting when they ran the same experiment with a female experimenter who was fully gowned, but there was a shirt that had been worn by a male that was in the room. It also brought back this decreased time of immobility that was seen when there was a male experimenter. So like olfactory cross-dressing. <laughs> I, I know they weren't wearing the shirt, but... Another interesting experiment they did here was EEGs uh, on mice, which I'm sure either looked adorable or terrifying. I'm, I'm picturing the cover of a book that had a mouse on a motorcycle with a helmet. Yeah, a little um, helmet on the mouse on the Oh my gosh. Okay. So when they put whatever adorable helmet, let's just say it's an adorable helmet. It's not scary gears and wires coming out of a head of a mouse. When they put the adorable EEG helmet on the mouse, ketamine was found to increase the prefrontal cortex power when there was a uh, male experimenter. And this is associated with, um, uh, th there's something about the hippocampus sending signals to the prefrontal cortex to affect um, stress-related behavior, like something like that. This is an absolutely terrible oversimplification, and I feel almost awful for saying this, but not enough to not say it. <laughs> That's uh, the perfect amount. You, yeah, <laughs> the right horrible balance. If you want to be super fucking oversimplistic about it, just to keep it in your brain, just to memorize it, Think about the association of the hippocampus with memory. Mm -hmm. Think about the association of the prefrontal cortex with judgment. Bringing in memories of how to handle situations like these can, can help tamp down a stress response if you don't need a stress response. Or not. Hey, I'm Yell. Yeah? Hey, I'm yeah. Now that we're talking about EEGs, yeah. I want to bring up my favorite thing about them, which is, of course, the fact that a belief in telepathy was instrumental to EEG tech being developed when it was. I'm not going to say we wouldn't have invented EEG tech if that particular guy hadn't wanted to study the neural correlates of psychicness, um, but maybe it would have taken longer, would have been developed by someone else. And I feel bad for him because he developed this tech and never you know, found, we never found good evidence mm. for psychic abilities, but maybe it's a translational issue. Maybe what they're going to pick up here is, uh, you know, maybe mice are psychic. Hasn't been proven yet. Yet. Hasn't been disproven. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and so that's one of a great many reasons why I love it when less invasive tech like this can be used on both human brains and mouse brains, 
Because the more stuff we can scaffold together with correlations and whatnot, the easier all this translational shit is. And maybe we'll finally find out the neural underpinnings of psychic vibes. Mm -hmm. That's all I want. I don't understand how people will believe in like psychic events when it's like we're measuring the activity in the brain using sensors and there's still no evidence of this <laughs> metaphysical thing that you think exists like we know everything that's going on in there like uh, 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 oh god okay oh my god. <laughs> we don't know everything that's going on in there i'm like trying to censor myself and be accurate with and reason with people who have no reason so i'm just gonna move on <laughs> Next set of experiments, we're looking at the HPA axis. You must have been thinking about when that was going to come into play. Corticotropin releasing factor mediates the effects of the experimenter's sex on these behaviors. So there is corticotropin releasing factor and there's corticotropin releasing hormone. And it turns out that words suck and those two things are the same. And you want to know why? Because fuck you, that's why. Ding. So when you look up either one of those terms, Science Direct is going to take you to the same set of articles. Uh, but people get saucy. People get, yeah, extremely worked up about names. And I mean, it, it can present a real communication issue or a lit search issue if you're searching a dumb database that doesn't, yeah know things. You have, this is one of the reasons why doing a meta-analysis, a systematic review, mm -hmm. is more than just Googling. <laughs> it's like you have to be really uh, good at finding papers that mention the chemical you're looking for and all the names it used to go by. Mm -hmm. It's like doing a background check on the sketchiest person in the world. Um, people have made a lot of fun jokes about the terminology they and other people use. Uh, one of my favorites is from uh, Thomas Cash. Stress guy wrote, I had to accept CRH when we started doing paraventricular nucleus work or else collaboration may have collapsed like a chloride gradient under stress. <laughs> Words make a big difference. And hormones, you know, circulate in the blood and factors just go around factorizing. So more general term, maybe a little better. I found a 2009 review by a professor... Slominski that said corticotropin releasing hormone parentheses CRH previously known as corticotropin releasing factor and I'm like it's, oh, it's like still called that <laughs> you just decided to put this in the past tense <laughs> referred to by doofuses so <laughs> as <laughs> so when I contacted this University of Tennessee professor and I asked him about this, he said, why yes, corticotropin releasing hormone, because you can't hear a factor. <laughs> so male scent engages with CRFs. <laughs> just moving right on. <laughs> they interact specifically with CRF systems before corticosterone and the HPA system. So this is looking at the HPA axis at a specific location. And so these results are corticosterone synthesis independent and CRF dependent. These CRF dependent effects are what enable ketamine to have their antidepressant-like effects. So back to that forced swim test, 
having a male apply ketamine, uh, you're going to have an effect on the behavior of the animals, such as a decreased immobility time. They blocked the corticosterone when there's a male experimenter plus ketamine. They didn't see a change in the behavior effects. Uh, But when they blocked CRF, a different point of that HPA axis, and they add ketamine, uh, you see decreased immobility time. Well, if you want to get that same effect in female experimenters, you inject the CRF in there. So CRF plus ketamine equaled this decreased immobility time. That's how you get the HPA access activated with a female experimenter is you have the ketamine on board with the CRF to get those antidepressant effects. Also, sniffing. (laughs) Don't say anything more. Just leave it there. <laughs> no, I have to. That's all you need to know. So if you um, if you blocked the CRF in some antagonistic way, I forget how, uh, you see the decrease of the aversion to the male scent. All right. So where is this all fucking happening? In the brain. Next section is summary. No. Um, the entorhinal cortex processes olfactory cues. And the male scent seems to activate CRF neurons, so neurons that are producing CRF, I believe, not ones that have receptors and are sensitive to it. They're activating CRF neurons that project to an area of the hippocampus called the CA1, and this enhances the response of ketamine. Good for it. Specifically, when you get ketamine and you stimulate with CRF, you get an increase in the AMPA-R-mediated CA1 FEPSPs. I would say 10% of our audience knows what that is. I was going to say, what the fuck is that? <laughs> no. Throw an alphabet soup in me. I know. Okay, so they're doing uh, local field potentials, which is a great way to just measure, hey, all the neurons in this area, like, what are they all tend to be doing? Like, if you're putting a microphone in the water and you're measuring what the fish are making sounds about. Instead of going up to a specific fish and putting a microphone on its mouth to measure what it's doing. Why are the fish talking? Oh, yeah, this is a horrible analogy. No, actually, (laughs) I'm just now racking my brain trying to think of all the different electrophys lessons Mm -hmm. it's been attempted to to teach me, and why the Fuck, didn't dropping a microphone into the water ever come up? That's so salient. Oh, you're yeah. sweet. Okay, oh, so they... No, I'm not. That's just really good. <laughs> All right, so they found that around... Okay, microphones have come up, but microphones in, like, different aquatic situations, mm. highly usable analogy. Everyone, please use it more. Yes, that's alphabet soup, and uh, that's why we're not going to reside here for very much longer. But we're going to explain how you can take this fact and you can find a way to mimic the effects of male scent. In the forced swim test, when you take CRF and you inject it into the CA1, then you see the effects of ketamine to lower the immobility time the same way that you would get if you had them interact with a male experimenter. You could also block the male scent aversion when you shut down these CRF neurons in the entorhinal cortex. That part was pretty fucking rad. Yeah. 
In summary, uh, the sex of the human experimenter may more broadly be considered a factor that can influence rodent behavior, quote-unquote. No shit, okay, shit. Okay, well, somebody's gotta. But people have been. No, what, didn't you say that you couldn't find oh, yeah. like, this was the study that you've been looking for? I thought you meant somebody's gotta say it. Mm-hmm. This is an article in our new journal, but somebody's gotta. <laughs> yeah. You don't know until you know. The aversion apparently is due to the CRF expressing neurons that are projecting from the entorhinal cortex into the CA1, or at least in part. Thank you. That That's what's in- involved. The coolest thing about this is in exploring exactly how male scent fucks things up or increases the antidepressant or anxiety effects of ketamine, we have a new potential treatment to mood disorders. And that is uh, something that I love about dissecting this this set of pathways mm-hmm. as for the actions of ketamine, is that um, when we're talking about the therapeutic effects of ketamine in humans, just like any other psychoactive drug, the way it affects you is heavily dependent on your surroundings. I mean, that's why ketamine clinics are like, have comfy chairs and shit, and they don't just, you know, it's not a drive through window where they <laughs> load you up mm. and... Make sure you're in the passenger seat and send you on your way. One of the things that can, from what I've been told, uh, cause a suboptimal ketamine experience is feeling like you're being watched and you're being under pressure Mm -hmm. and people are expecting things of you. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're in a clinic where they're not paying attention to that kind of stuff, that can be a major component of your ketamine administration experience. Things like presence of other people and what they're doing and how that's affecting your, you know, experience can have major effect on your therapeutic ketamine experience. And so understanding the neural underpinnings of that, Mm -hmm. like they do in this paper, can lead to some huge advancements in the way we understand who's going to respond how to what. Yeah, because other forms of stress didn't mimic this response. They stressed out mouse. Um, mouses through traditional means, quote unquote, with female experimenters. <laughs> That's what I think. Traditional. But no, it was specifically the activation of the CRF neurons from the EC to the CA1 that interacting with ketamine induced these antidepressant effects. And maybe there are some people who their specific genetic receptor milieu involves uh changes to that pathway. What if we have a treatment now that includes ketamine as well as CRF receptor agonists so that we can boost this effect of ketamine? Mm. And how do different expectancies of ketamine affect someone's stress level and overall CRF What do you mean expectancies? Like what you think the high is going to be? Yeah, or if you tell them like this is a this is a psychedelic, people are like, "Oh, I've heard that word before. That's for hippies. I'm going to get my brain eaten." Oh god, no. Ah. You know, d- different people have very different reactions to the same stimuli. I don't believe you. So the high <laughs> <laughs> What made this study interesting to me or the highlights, how do you get rid of this male smell? Well, in the methods they did find that increased use of personal protective equipment might be able to make up for a regular smelling male. So that involved uh, working in a biosafety cabinet 
using a single one-time use lab coat on the very top and then on top of a regular clean lab coat and then have high sleeve gloves. So I don't know exactly how high those gloves are, but they go above the lab coat's sleeves. I'm picturing like Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> yeah, my silk like, lab yeah. gloves. I'd go back for that. <laughs> Call me crazy. I bet they'd really like it. <laughs> if I were going to be picked up by a giant demigod, I would want it to have a nice, smooth, satiny finish. I have a highlight. Okay. Um, aside from the whole the whole paper, one like little nuggety thing that stuck out to me that was like, yes, more of this, please. In the methods, they noted that the mice were always housed in the same relative space on the racks. Hmm. I don't think I've ever seen this mentioned in a paper before. I reserve no. the right to be forgetting something. But yeah, it is not common. I missed that in the methods section. Wow. Why, why is that important to you? For many reasons. Uh, one of which is that a professor came to visit, give a talk, do the grad student lunch thing uh, several years ago. And one of the things she mentioned in passing as an uh -huh. aside <laughs> is that two of the biggest factors in elevated plus maze behavior are when cage cleaning day was. I'm sure wow. that's known. Yeah. Yeah. And how high their cage is on the rack, which... Yeah, you're doing a test of how weirded out they are by being out up high. Okay, but they don't get to see how high they are normally while they're in the cage. Couldn't that just be an effect of the smell of all of the mice below them wafting up to them? That is another huge factor, yes. What kind of ventilation system are you working yeah, with? Yeah, I'm thinking yeah, a lot about smells of... because of this paper. <laughs> Welcome to my world of nightmares. Welcome to the jungle! You're gonna smell some smells! <laughs> <laughs> yes, we got lots of smells! God, the stupidest thing I've ever said. <laughs> I doubt that. But that's interesting about the elevated plus maze. Thank you. And yeah, I love how yes. it's as an aside of like these things need to be more commonly yeah. known. So this paper did have some low lights. Uh, what do I think could have been done differently? I mean, the idea that male handling is needed for ketamine to work. I mean, that sounds like a fun Saturday night, but aren't we already seeing the effects of ketamine pretty regularly in humans without having to have male handling involved or like some sort of specific stress response? I didn't see anything in the paper that talked about, well, then how come it kind of works in humans? Question mark. We are a big giant ball of variables and people do ketamine in all sorts of different contexts with all sorts of different people present and we are never going to get data as granular as this kind of shit i would really like to find out what specific type of fear we have to induce with the ketamine for the humans to receive the equivalent thing obviously not it's not the smell of a human but what if it turns out to be like the smell of like a predator of some kind like you have to smell some like lion piss and then you'll <laughs> get better effects yeah and different experiences can be stressful to different people the other thing that i wanted to say in regards to this low light was just you know then why did previous research show that ketamine had an effect on um the antidepressant anti-anxiety like behavior were those just labs filled with all men like how do you account for for that and you report it you 
take a time machine and interview people who in some cases are long dead or retired and you ask them, hey, in 1978, who did which experiments? And they say, why are you at my house? Please leave. All right, now it's time for Topia Corner. This can pop up for any article we discuss. This segment is where we do what scientists aren't supposed to do. We speculate wildly on the utopia or dystopia the findings of this article might create. So my, it's up to the listener to decide for themselves what utopia, dystopia this would be. But but perhaps animal behavior facilities will become more like hooters. They'll have really good wings. Mm-hmm. Really good wings of female-only environments to decrease the chance of activating the wrong things at the wrong time and make sure all the animals in that facility are as comfortable as possible. So Hooters is allowed to get around that whole Civil Rights Act because it's called a bona fide occupational qualification. So companies aren't usually allowed to discriminate based on religion, sex, or national origin unless it is considered a bona fide occupational qualification for the normal operation of that particular business. Because Hooters doesn't treat themselves as a restaurant, they are a restaurant, um, they don't have to hire male servers. And this is a loophole that they use. So maybe the equivalent for science would be that we have labiatories. Oh my god. So that would be kind of a dystopia, but lead to a lot more women in science. So that'd be cool. Yes. Okay. So while we're on the subject of Hooters, uh, I would just like to... Because that's what we do here. That's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes when you're looking at a job application or a school application um, of someone who wants to get into research... They won't list work experience that doesn't seem sciencey enough. Mm-hmm. And that's fine if you've got a CV full of lab experience. But if you're 19 and your only other job is at Chipotle, uh, some assholes will be going around saying, don't list that because it's not sciencey. No, that's a really useful skill set. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God, running IHCs? Every table is a different experiment. Mm-hmm. That you have to deliver a, a certain protocol? Yeah. Yeah, a bunch of shit needs to be kept at certain temperatures and they need to be mm-hmm. mixed together and a customer service. Like, yeah, list that shit. If we lived in a utopia, I'd say the same is true of sex work, but we don't, so I can't. Yeah, a lot of super relevant skill sets that translate from sex work to medicine, anything where you have to interact with people or manage physiological realities, assert boundaries with people in sketchy situations. Yeah, overlapping skill sets, a plenty. That's my note from Topia Corner. Another dystopia would be that the Olympics are having to deal with uh, trans issues in regards to the athletes. And so what oh, if... Oh, and surprise intersex issues. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's... It's one of those things where they test you and they're like, oh, you've got man blood. And you're like, um, okay. Being trans is usually something that someone knows about. And there's, mm-hmm. uh, in that whole milieu, there's also the uh, that factor of surprising people with info about their own bodies. Gosh, I, I always think about intersex as you, know, you have both parts and it's pretty obvious. But yeah, it isn't oh, always that. Ooh. 
Here's a plug. No, we gotta keep on going, Leah. Read sexing the body. (laughs) Damn it, Leah. So what if the Olympics started measuring the response of mice to your smell? And they used that to determine if you were going to be able to compete in male or female events. Oh, so like if you've been on estrogen long enough to smell ladylike, <laughs> then you're... Yeah, you have to perform the mouse test. Okay, so it's like, it's not me, it's the mouse. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mouse says mm. no. Jesus Christ. <laughs> mouse says trans rights. <laughs> <laughs> So now it's on to our own closing ceremonies. This is where we provide you a little takeaway, something we think will uh, be applicable for ourselves and potentially you in the coming weeks. Previous service announcements on this show have included, are you clenching your jaw? Stop clenching your jaw. And now we bring you relax your shoulders. Have you done that? Do that. Thank you for that. <laughs> Leo. I what? did need the jaw one. <laughs> I found my shoulders are like constantly up and like, it's like how I hold my body when I'm trying to focus. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Laptop gargoyle. <laughs> Even in the absence of a laptop. Uh, and, and while we're at it, is your butt, are you, is your butt right? Are you, are you sitting on your butt right? Are you standing with your butt right? Do you wanna, are you, There's a, do you have your right? spine? What's the right way? Yeah. Do I do have a spine. Oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. Is your butt like in line with it? Is it is it coming forward or are you sticking your butt out like a hamster in heat? <laughs> Just gotta tuck it up, tuck it up under, tuck it up before you fuck it up. Um, my takeaway. Here is my takeaway for you. Mouse piss. <laughs> End of. <laughs> but uh, male mouse piss and a lot of other tissues and a lot of other different places and individuals, male mouse piss particularly contains a protein called Darsin, um, or MUP20, major urinary protein 20. It's also found in the liver and uh, other places. Nobody cares. Lots of people care. And Anyway, uh, Darsin. It's named that after Mr. Darcy um, because it is one of the compounds that you can either isolate from urine or grow in a dish. And uh, female mice will find it rewarding and it can induce, it can increase uh, hippocampal neurogenesis depending on the stage of the female mouse's estrus cycle. Uh, So that's something that was in my mind this whole time is uh, how are these olfactory effects mediated by uh, hormonal situations in the female mice? That's not to say it's all too complicated, we should throw it away. It's just ringing the old sex is a biological variable gong. Uh, there are ways to do this stuff and, and learn interesting stuff, but we got to be careful about it. And the, the fact of Darson's name mm-hmm. um, has parallels to corticotropin releasing hormone or corticotropin releasing factor because names, names of brain regions, names of genes, those are all made up by people, mm-hmm. and it's usually related to the context where they found it, you know? Yeah, um, sure. And one way to explain that to either yourself or to a young individual is like street names or town names. You know, how many Springfields are there? 
when someone names a town Springfield, you can infer that at one point they there was a field with a spring in it. And so they said, all right, I'll name this town the place with the spring and the field. Does that mean it's the only field and spring for a hundred mile radius? No, but that's what was on those particular individuals' minds when they gave it that name. Darson, does it exist solely to attract females like Mr. Darcy? No, but that was the biggest context that was on the minds of the people who were looking at it when it was there to be named. So corticotropin releasing factor, it causes the release of corticotropin. It might do a bunch of other things. Like just because Mm. it has that name doesn't mean that's its full destiny. And the more you keep that in mind, the harder it will be to be surprised by one molecule having multiple functions. Good takeaway. Yeah, in my research of uh, CRF, I found uh, a lot of its direct effects, not just on getting the pituitary to do something, but on uh, microglia and astrocytes, uh, peripheral immune cells in general, inflammation, and directly through those pathways and not through its further activity in the HPA access, leading to depressive-like behaviors. We went through a whole episode without mentioning glia fucking once. (laughs) What is wrong? That was close. Yes, microglia, astrocytes. God bless them. Please follow the show on Twitter at MisbehaviorJC and Instagram at the same thing. I've gotten some people following the show. That feels really good. Thank you very much. Thanks. You can find me, Aviel, at CurlsPhD, or if you want something more inappropriate, Trouble Helix with two X's. And you can find Leah at Hawks in Socks, and that's Hawks, H-O-X. Thank you so much for allowing us into one of your sensory pathways. Hi. You can tell your friends and tell your enemies, just do not tell your PI about this podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to this show. And we hope you join the club again soon. You really do. In the meantime, don't forget to misbehave. Misbehave. You need to lose some weight. You need to stand up straight. For your partner is a terrible disgrace. You need to suck in your gut. You need to tuck in your butt. You need to clear them zips up all their face. And then they told me if you dig it, don't do it. And if you like it, better leave.